Well, today is our final sermon in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to look at verses 24 to 29 of Matthew chapter 7. So if you would, just uh, go ahead and open your Bible. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 24 to 29. This is a very well-known story of the two house builders. The wise man built his house on the rock, whereas the foolish man built his house on the sand. Let's read the text. Matthew Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell... And the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, like I said, we've spent a number of weeks looking at this Sermon on the Mount. Really an amazing sermon by our Lord. We've heard... Great preaching, not, not my preaching, but great preaching from the Lord on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. God the Son took on human flesh, lived as a man, and came and preached this sermon. God the Holy Spirit worked through Matthew to perfectly record this sermon for us. God the Father oversaw and coordinated the whole thing. And so we've studied the perfect sermon. God the Son, with the full help of His Father and the Holy Spirit, has told us what a Christian is and what a Christian does. And throughout the sermon, righteousness has been a key word. Righteousness. A Christian is righteous. Not because they try harder than others, but because of what God has done for them and in them. God has changed the Christian from the inside out. The believer's been made new, and as a new person, he or she lives a new life. In Matthew 7, 16-20, Jesus put it like this, healthy trees bear good fruit. In other words, Christians are righteous people, and they will therefore bear righteous fruit. How do they become righteous people? How do they become good trees? Well, God transforms us by grace. And so the Christian is a person with new desires, new values, a new vision, and the newness is the result of a new nature. They're born again. And Jesus has shown us what a true disciple of His is, and He has shown us what we will do. And those two go hand in hand, what we are and what we do. We cannot do what we're told to do unless we are what we are told to be. And in a sense then, this sermon has been like a mirror. And it's shown us what we're supposed to look like. 
It's shown us what we're supposed to look like. And then in the conclusion of the sermon, Jesus exhorted us to enter into this life. Become like the image in the mirror is kind of a way we could put that. And so from Matthew 7, verse 13, He said, enter in at the narrow gate and walk on this narrow way. He says we need to be a good tree. We need to beware of false prophets who would lead us astray. We need to go beyond merely calling Jesus Lord, Lord. We need to enter into this life that He calls us to live. And so the question for you and I as we come to the end of our study is something like this. How did this sermon impact your life? How did this study of the Sermon on the Mount impact you over the last almost year? Uh, Reese told me the other day it was May of last year that we started looking at this Sermon on the Mount. May of last year. How has your life changed since May of last year as a result of looking at this sermon? God the Son has told us the character traits of anyone who will enter the kingdom. He has told us in no uncertain terms about the righteousness that we must have. And He has shown us the narrow way that leads to life. And so the question is, are you on it? Are you walking in the way that Jesus commands? In His final words in this message, Jesus warns about the great danger of hearing the message without putting it into practice. You know, it's so easy for us to be deceived about this. We can get this sense that we're doing great because we're, we're learning things when in actuality nothing has changed whatsoever. And in James chapter 1, James picks up on what our Lord says here and he illustrates it for us. And I, I want you to just turn there as we begin. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1, starting at verse 22. James says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The Word of God is supposed to be a mirror to show us how to change. And the reason we look in a mirror is to fix our appearance. There's no point looking in a mirror if you're not going to do something about it. It's no good to look in a mirror without combing your hair and fixing the way that you look. And in the same way, it does no good to hear the Word without putting it into practice. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want to ask three questions to help us examine ourselves and really to examine the way that this Sermon on the Mount has impacted our lives. So three questions to examine ourselves. I called it three heart-searching questions for those who hear the Sermon on the Mount. Three heart-searching questions for those who hear the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one is this. It's, what kind of hearer are you? What kind of hearer are you? And that first question is drawn from verses 24 and 26. 
What kind of hearer are you? Jesus makes a comparison here between hearing and building. A hearer of the Sermon on the Mount is like a builder of a house. And in the comparison, there's two kinds of builders who build on two kinds of foundations. Each builder is building his own house. And that was probably common in that day, more more likely that that you would build your own house than that you would have a builder build your house for you. But each builder here is building his own house. And both men build houses in the comparison, just like the two kinds of people hear Jesus' sermon. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then look at verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now these verses are almost word for word the same. Verse 24 has the word therefore in the original. It's in, in the ESV it's translated then. Everyone then who hears the word. Therefore shows that these verses are the conclusion of all that came before, especially from verse 13 to verse 23. Because the broad way leads to destruction, because false prophets will lead you astray, because bad trees are cut down and thrown in the fire, because many will not enter the kingdom who call Jesus Lord, therefore is an illustration then to summarize it all. Verse 26 doesn't have the word therefore, it has the word and to kind of continue. So everyone then, everyone therefore who hears, and everyone who hears in verse 26. Both verses have everyone who hears these words of mine. Word for word the same. Everyone who hears these words of mine. There will be some people maybe who never hear these words. Jesus isn't talking about them right now. He is talking about everyone who hears these words. And everyone would include those who heard those words on on the mountain that day. And everyone who heard them through Matthew, whether they they heard it by reading or whether they, they heard it audibly. In other words, this would include you yourself. You are one who has heard these words. Now the second half of both of those verses are the same. It says, everyone who, who heard these words of mine will be like a blank man who built his house on the blank. Those, those words are the exact same with the blanks being changed. Everyone who hears these words of mine will be like a man who built his house. The difference is in the kind of man and the kind of foundation. You see, you are a, a hearer of this sermon. You are either wise or foolish. You are either building a house on rock or you're building a house on sand. Everyone who hears the Sermon on the Mount is like a man who builds a house. The only question is, what kind of a man are you? Are you wise or foolish? Are you building on rock or are you building on sand? And the whole thing comes down to that little word in the middle of both verses. It says, and does them or and does not do them. Does them or does not do them. You see, hearing is good, and you need to hear, but hearing without doing is foolish, 
And as we will see, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. Hearing the word without doing, or we might say hearing without putting it into practice is deceptive. And here's what can happen. You can, you can feel like you're all right. You can feel like you're doing just fine. You're, you're there with everyone else. I mean, you're, you're hearing the same truth. You can even have conversations about it. And, and in some cases, you might even talk eloquently about these things. Hearing and, and talking and being with others can make you feel like you're on the narrow way when in reality, you're on the broad way that leads to destruction. In reality, you're just spending time with those people who are themselves on the narrow way when you are on the broad way. And you can be hearing the same things as them and kind of having conversations with them, but not be genuinely saved. You see, you can be on the broad way that leads to destruction all the while that you go to church with people who are actually on the narrow way. And you can hear all the sound evangelical truths like the necessity of the new birth, the doctrine of repentance. You can hear about justification by faith. You can hear all of that and talk about all of that, but not really have it. And so Jesus wants us to hear and do. We're to hear and we're to put what we hear into practice. In other words, Jesus requires obedience. Jesus requires obedience. And what are we to obey? Well, he says, these words of mine. These words of mine, that's everything in the sermon. We are wise if we have the character traits he described and if we do the things that he commanded. And we are foolish if we don't. And I think what we need to do then as we kind of close up this sermon is we need to go back one more time and try to do a brief review of these words of mine. And as we do this brief review, I want you to ask yourself, and even for some of you who are visiting with us and haven't heard all of these sermons, I want you to, to just kind of listen to these things and ask yourself as we go, do these things describe me? Are you doing these things? Is this you? Now, the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 and verse 3. And these Beatitudes describe the state, the, the enviable state, the blessed state of a true disciple or of a true believer. And the first one in verse 3 was, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a state of recognizing spiritual poverty. That you have nothing in yourself to commend you to God. Such a one would see that even their doing of these words of Jesus wouldn't be enough to earn them God's favor. They see that they fall short, that they are sinners. And then verse 4, blessed are you who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. The object of that mourning is sin. One's own sin and sin throughout the world. And so do you mourn over sin? Verse 5, blessed are the meek. And the meek were those who trust God in the midst of the corruption of the world. And they don't take matters into their own hands. Instead, they take them to God in prayer. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are you satisfied with your righteousness? Or are you striving for more? 
Blessed are the merciful, verse 7. And we saw here that the chief reason someone is merciful towards others is because they recognize that God has been merciful to them. And when they see that, that their enormous debt of sin has been forgiven by God, they become willing to show mercy and forgiveness to others. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the pure in heart was one with a single focus. A single focus. And the, the object of that focus is in the second part of the verse, to see God. All of these states are rewarded with a, a corresponding reward. And so to see God is, is the focus of this person's heart. It is your goal to see and know and enjoy God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers know peace with God through salvation in Christ. And they bring others into that peace. And they also bring peace then with men, between men and men. And so you could ask yourselves here, do you know peace with God? And do you make peace in other people's lives? Verse 10 said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These people Jesus is describing are so committed to doing what is right that they're willing even to be persecuted for it. They're willing even to suffer for righteousness. And in verse 11, we see that they're doing it for Jesus' sake. Those eight Beatitudes describe the character or the nature of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Does this describe who you are? Is it you? Or at the very least, is this who you hunger and thirst to be? All of these things together describe what a Christian is according to Jesus. And then Jesus said in, in something of a transition, verses 13 to 16, He said that you are salt and you are light. There is no other salt in the world. There is no other light and he says you need to be what you are in the world. You need to let your light shine. He says don't, don't hide that light, but let it shine. Just like the purpose of lighting a lamp and is to give light, so your purpose, look at verse 16, your purpose in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In verse 17 to chapter 7 and verse 12 is the main body of the sermon. Jesus tells us here how we are to live in righteousness. He didn't come to abolish the law, to but to fulfill it. And He wants it fulfilled especially in our lives. Not just externally like the scribes and the Pharisees taught, but internally in our hearts. Jesus wants the righteousness of the law lived out in our hearts, in our thinking, in our emotions, in our values. And he gives six illustrations of this. He contrasts what was said to those of old in the law and the way that the Pharisees taught it with, with what he himself says. Jesus says, keeping the law outwardly like the scribes and Pharisees taught is not enough. We must keep it inwardly. So that not only do we not murder in verses 21 to 26, but we also refrain from outbursts of anger. And not only that, we also diligently pursue reconciliation with anyone who has something against us. And so we don't murder, we don't attack with our words, we don't murder with our words, but instead we pursue reconciliation. Even in the heart level of, of anger in the heart. 
And then in verses 27 to 30, Jesus talked about lust in the heart. To look with lustful intent is to commit adultery in the heart. The Christian is one who takes drastic action in fighting against sin, even cutting off his hand, going to extreme measures to fight against sin. In verses 31 to 32, we saw that the Christian takes a serious view on divorce and sees it as the sin of adultery. Look at verse 31. It was said all, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verses 33 to 37 go further on oaths and vows. We're to be people of our word who speak truthfully and do what we say. In verses 38 to 42, we saw that we're not to retaliate even against evil people. And then in verses 43 to 48, we even love our enemies. Just as God does good to His enemies, so we, seeking to be like God, do good to those who are not good to us. And so God Himself is the model of the Christian's righteousness. Look at 5 and verse 48. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now chapter 6 begins with directions on how to practice this righteousness of ours. So we, we are righteous. Well, how do we practice it? It's to be done with sincerity. It's to be done before God and not to please or to look good before men. Jesus gave three examples here of giving and praying and fasting. And everything is to be done with an aim to please our Father in heaven, knowing that He will, re- he will reward us in the future. Jesus spent some extra time here teaching on prayer, what we could call the righteous prayer. And the desire of our hearts, as we see in verse 9, is for God's name to be hallowed, for His name to be held in high esteem, for Him to be glorified for His kingdom to come and for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray and we ask God to give us our daily bread and we look to Him to provide our needs. We ask daily for forgiveness of our debts. Our sins are viewed then as something that we owe. We owe God perfect obedience, but we recognize that we've fallen short. And so the mark of a Christian includes recognizing our sins and asking forgiveness. And we also ask God to keep us or protect us from temptation. The last part of chapter 6, starting in verse 19, is a command to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. We're to live with eternity in mind, with heaven in mind. We're to do righteousness and suffer anything to glorify God in this world. And as we live for God and serve Him, we are to trust Him to care for us. We're not to be anxious about the world, what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. We're to be focused instead on loving God and serving Him. Chapter 7, verses 1-12 to concludes the main body of the sermon by showing us two helps. First of all, as we pursue this perfect standard, we should beware of growing judgmental or of, of thinking that we're better than others. We started off poor in spirit and we need to stay that way. 
And instead of judging others, we're to help others pursue this righteousness. First, by dealing with our own sin. And then step two is to help your brother with his sin. Look at Matthew 7 and verse 5. It says, you hypocrite, first take out the log, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now the other help as we pursue this righteousness is a, a glorious promise. God is our Father and He will provide the good gifts that we need. And if you want to live this way, you're going to need to pray according to Matthew 7 and verse 7. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And look at verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And then Jesus tells His disciples, starting at verse 13 in the conclusion, to enter into this way of living. Any other way of living is the broad path that leads to destruction. He says, beware of false prophets who would lead us astray and who would keep us from living this way. He gets back to our nature again when he says in verse 17, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, if you are born again, you will live according to this Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verses 21 to 23 that professing Him as Lord is not enough. We need to truly live it. And all of that then is what we are to obey. That's what we're commanded to obey in our text this morning. Hearing it is good, but doing it is what really counts. Doing it is what really counts. And so let me ask you again, is this you? Are you living this way? Are, are, you, are you like this? The goal is perfection. The goal is to be like God and Christ. But, but even within that goal, as we've seen, there's this recognition that we will still sin and that we aren't fully satisfied with our righteousness in this life. And so we ask in this even for the forgiveness of our sins as we commit them. And we ask God to keep us from further temptation. But ask yourself honestly, am I doing these things? Is this truly who I am? And as you ask yourself that, the good news is in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But if this is not you, if you hear but do not do, Jesus says in verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now no builder would be so foolish as to build his house on the sand. And that's really the, the point of the whole thing. No, no builder would ever be this foolish. As ridiculous as it would be to build a house without paying attention to the foundation, so it is to hear these things and not do them. You would mock the foolish builder, but you are in a worse state because you are building your eternal house on an unsolid foundation. And isn't it amazing how men will be so careful in their earthly affairs 
and take such care to build a house that is stable and enduring. But when it comes to spiritual and eternal things, they will build on such a weak foundation, even being satisfied with hearing God's word without doing it. My friends, do not be a fool and think merely going to church and hearing good preaching is enough. It is not enough. You must heed it. You must obey it. You must put it into practice. And so the first heart-searching question was, what kind of hearer are you? And the second is this, and it flows from the first. Number two, what kind of results can you expect? We know what kind of hearer we are now. Let's think about what are the results of this kind of hearing? What, what can we expect if we hear the way that we hear? Look at verse 25 and 27 for this point. We ask, what kind of a hearer are you? Are you a, a hearer only or are you a hearer who obeys? And with the answer in mind, we must go further and look at the results of that way of hearing. Look at verse 25. And the rain fell. And the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That was the wise man's house. It stood the storm. It, it withstood. But look at the foolish man's house in verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Again, these two verses are almost word for word the same. There's a slight difference where it says in verse 25, and the winds blew and beat on that house. Whereas verse 27 has, in the ESV anyways, it has, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And so there's a a different word there in the original, beat on or beat against. Beat on in verse 25 means to strike against. And the word in verse 27 means to strike against as well, but it it has this added sense of violence. One dictionary said, or one lexicon said, it means to make contact with something in a bruising or a violent manner. And so the word in verse 27 that describes the foolish man's house and the storm against his house is slightly stronger than the word used in verse 25. The other difference is this, the house built on the rock did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But verse 27 has, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So both houses face similar storms, but what do the storms represent? What are these storms representations of? Some people throughout church history have seen it as the, as the, the storms, as these, as the difficulties of life. The storms of life, if we could say it that way. If you obey Jesus and, and do the Sermon on the Mount, you will endure trials. And I guess there's a, a sense in which living the Sermon on the Mount will help you in your day to day life as you face trials of various kind, but that's not what this is about. If we think about it in the context, think about it this way, verse 13, The wide gate and the easy way leads to destruction. That's hell. In verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's hell. In verse 23, Jesus will tell people who professed Him as Lord, but did not live the Sermon on the Mount, did not do the will of the of my Father in heaven. 
He will say to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And again, that's hell. And so the foolish person's great fall will be on the day of judgment. On that day, as Jesus said last week in verses 21-23, the foolish person's great fall will be on the day of judgment. And what this teaches then is that every one of us will face God's judgment at the end of our lives when our Lord returns. And if we are saved, we will live as Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount, and we will endure that judgment. We will make it through that judgment. And the reason we will not fall in the judgment, it's not going to be because we did good or because we did more good than bad. That's not the point of this. The standard for judgment is perfection, and the only one who ever met that standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. We all deserve hell. Our sins against God, against so good and so great a God, deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus came and died to pay that penalty for us. And when we believe on Him and we're united to Him so that our sins are counted as His and His righteousness is counted as ours. That's called the great exchange. And only through this great exchange can we escape judgment. Only by faith can we be saved. We are justified by faith, never by our works, never by what we do. But here's the thing. If we are truly united to Christ by faith in Him, He will transform our lives and we will live the way the Sermon on the Mount describes. That's what Jesus teaches. That's the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And if we don't live that way, we are not saved. If we don't live that way, we are not saved. Another way to say this might be like this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been showing us what genuine salvation looks like. He's showing us real faith in Him. James would call it faith that works. Working kind of faith. And without faith that works or without doing, you will show that you've never truly been saved. Hearing only results in hell. Hearing only results in hell. And it is as foolish or more so than building a house on sand. Those who hear and do will enter into the kingdom of heaven and be delivered from judgment. Those who hear and do not do will fall in the judgment and there is no greater fall. Think about this carefully. What will the result be if you continue to do as you've been doing? What will the result be if you continue to do as you've been doing? Now, for many of you, I hope you say, yes, I've been doing it. I've been putting it into practice and these things describe me and I hunger and thirst for more of these things. But there could be someone here today that has been hearing only and, the, and, and you need to think about the result of that kind of a lifestyle. Will you fall or will you not fall? Are you being like the wise man preparing for judgment or are you not? Now let's go to verses 28 and 29 and we see now the response of the crowd to this sermon. And as we consider the crowd's response, I want you to consider one more time your own response to the Sermon on the Mount. This is number three in our outline. 
And I just ask this, what kind of response will you give? Verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That little phrase beginning verse 28 is, is Matthew's way of dividing up the book. And when Jesus finished these sayings, there's five discourses in Matthew. There's five messages from Jesus in Matthew, and all of them end with a version of when Jesus finished. And so we have Matthew 7.28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Matthew 11 verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Matthew 13.53 says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. Matthew 19 verse 1, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region beyond Judea, beyond the Jordan. And then finally, Matthew 26 and verse 1, when Jesus had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples. And so the crowds were, that's, that's Matthew's kind of division of the book, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative. And we'll kind of see that as we go. But the crowds had heard this Sermon on the Mount and they were astonished. They were overwhelmed, the word means. They were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching. And that likely includes both the, the content and the manner of his teaching. Both what he taught and how he taught. He taught with authority. Nobody ever taught with such authority. You think about the authority that Jesus teaches with in this sermon. The prophets taught with authority, but they always made sure that people knew that it was God's words that they spoke and not their own. The Old Testament teachers, men like Ezra, taught with authority, but they taught God's Word. But Jesus taught differently. He taught as only God in human flesh could teach. He taught as the, he taught that, that he would be the final judge of every man. Think about that. He would be the final judge of every man. He taught that his words were equal with God's words. He taught that he was Lord and that we must obey him or face eternal punishment. He taught with authority. You know, you can't take Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and say, well, he was a, a good teacher. He demands a response. Even saying, wow, what a great teacher, it's not enough. Astonishment and amazement and a recognition of His authority is not sufficient. Jesus wants more. Jesus wants you and He wants me to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God. He wants us to obey everything that He commanded us. And when the judge says, do this or you will pay the full penalty, the defendant better do what he's told. Our judge says this sermon must be lived or we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Judgment will come to each and every one of us. Do not be foolish. Prepare your life for that day by doing and by wisely doing what Jesus demands. And anything less, anything less than hearing and doing is like building a house without building a proper foundation. It is foolish and it will not withstand in that day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for 
This final word of warning from our Lord. And we thank You, Father, that You have the power to change our lives so that we can live this way, so that we can deny ourselves and live for You and for Your glory and Your righteousness in the world. Father, we recognize that we fall short. And we thank You for these nuggets in this sermon that, that kind of show us that yes, we will do that. We are poor in spirit, Father. We mourn over sin even in our own lives. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We ask Your forgiveness when we sin, Father. And we do even daily, we do. But Father, we recognize those of us who are, are in You and who are born again, we recognize that You have changed our nature And that we love these things. We love this righteousness. We want to live in this way. And so, Father, we pray that You would help us to do this. We pray that You would help us to to do what You have told us to do in this sermon and to be what You have told us to be. We thank You that You have promised us that if we ask, that You You will grant us these things, that You will empower us to live in this way. And we thank You to the extent that we've seen it in our lives and we pray that You would show it to us more. We pray for those who are truly saved that You would encourage us with assurance of our salvation as we look at these words. But we pray then for those who may be hearing and and not doing, not putting it into practice, not living this way, who are not born again. And we pray, Father, that You would draw them to Yourself and save them by Your grace. That You would give them an unsettledness until they are brought truly in at the narrow gate. Christ is our solid rock. And we stand on Him. And we stand on Him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.